<laughs> it's good to be here. It's been a long time since I've uh, preached at the parish, and so it feels really nice to be back. Um, and, and it's weird. I, I worked for the church for like, uh, since I was 17 years old. And so the first time I stopped working for the church was two years ago, and I'm 42. Uh, and so, as, uh, I was born in 1980, just have to do the math, 2023, my birth is September. Uh, and, so, and so, it's been this weird, um, I don't preach every week, uh, and when I do, uh, it's always on the same thing, it's coming in and talking about One City Peterborough, and so I just preach the same sermon every week. So it's fun to come back and, and speak to you today, uh, and what I want to talk about is uh, monsters. Um, I, I realized uh, in the last few years that I don't believe in monsters anymore. And, uh, and uh, you know, we all kind of think, oh, well, many of us, you're a bit late, Christian. Most of us stop believing in monsters. But uh, one thing, I grew up in the 80s in a Pentecostal church and reading Frank Peretti. So monsters were a big part of my childhood, you know? If you ever read a Frank Peretti book, uh, monsters were a big part of that. Uh, and so I saw monsters everywhere, right? Around dark corners, uh, under my bed, waiting outside my window. They were all over the place. Now, as I got older, I realized the narrative of monsters continued for me, right? It, wa it wasn't so much those uh, creepy things crawling out of corners, but uh, monsters were the ones who did all the bad things in the world, right? And so if something bad happened, that person w was a monster. That's how I explained how things were going, right? We can explain bad things by saying bad things are done by monsters, and good things are done by good people. And I'm on team good people, clearly. Uh, and so, uh, and so, and that made the world make sense. But in recent years, uh, people have begun to remove my ability to believe in monsters. And, and that has been that I have begun to spend a lot of time with people who are written off as monsters who are labeled as monsters. And the problem is the more time you spend with those who are seen as being monsters, the more you realize monsters don't exist. One of the individuals that, that, that kind of took away this belief from me, um, I was supporting with him. Now, he was literally the poster child. I'm not a child, he was a man. But a, the poster man for the lock him up and throw away the key. He was on the cover of a magazine, for, basically with an article that said, if we don't do something, he could be in your neighborhood too. And he was in our neighborhood. And I ended up meeting with him every week with a, in kind of a support capacity. And so this man, who, who his mugshot was on the, my, my introduction to him was his mugshot on the, on the cover of a magazine, uh, ended up being someone that I was spending time with. And when I first met him, he was the intimidating fi uh, figure on the magazine. He was massive. I mean, all right, I'm short. Everyone's sort of massive to me. But he was like really, even to you tall people, he would have been massive, right? He was a big guy. And he walked in, and we began to meet. And, and i got to be honest, my heart was a bit, was a bit beating, because this was one of those guys that you hear about as like the absolute picture of evil. And the problem was, 
is that though, yes, he had done the horrendous things that, had been, that, that he was accused of. He had done those things. He had altered people's lives in ways that they would never be the same. He had done such damage that, that it was it's horrible. And yet, as I met him, that wasn't what made up all of who he was. As we hung out, I realized um, he, was, he was a kind person. He was a compassionate person. And these weren't things he was putting on. He was childlike. What I realized is how much pain and suffering he had experienced that had changed and messed up his view of reality and, and, and resulted in him doing incredibly destructive things. Now, none of this excuses anything that he did. And me meeting with him was a lot of him coming to terms with what he had done. But what I also realized is that it's too easy when we just label people as monsters. It allows us to, to, to say the way we end this is to get rid of those people. Because the scary thing is in meeting with individuals such as him, I begin to see myself in them. That I'm not as far as I wish I was from who they are. Right? That's the scary piece. And so we were meeting, and one day we were sitting there. And again, sometimes he was in different realities than maybe I existed in. And so we were having a conversation one day. And I said, so what's new? What's going on? And he said, do you think God talks to people? I'm going to be honest. I work, uh, the field I work in, that is always a scary thing to answer. Because you don't know where that's going, right? And so, and so I was like, tentatively, I said what I truly believed. And I was like, yes. <laughs> what's God saying to you? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and that can go a whole lot of different ways. And he said, oh, you know, just that he loves me. And I was like, oh, that was not what I saw coming at all. And I was, that was a very, a very beautiful moment. And I, and I was like, wow. And he's like, Christian, do you think that a guy can love another guy in like a non-sexual thing. And I knew he was wrestling with the fact that sex, intimacy, and connection had been so unhealthily smashed together for his whole life. And we'd been t spending a lot of time trying to pull those things apart. And I was like, yeah, I, I do. I think that's possible. He's like, you know what, Christian? And he looked me in the eye in this very pure and beautiful way and said, I love you. And I was like, oh, man. It was so, it was so pure that I couldn't like keep the eye contact, because I was too uncomfortable, right? And so, and so I had to look away, and I was like, yeah, thanks, man. You know what I mean? Like, super awkward. I, I couldn't do anything. He's like, I just wanted to tell you, because I, um, I think I'm going to die soon. I can't handle the shelter system, and I just, I think I'm going to, I think, uh, I, so I wanted to tell you before that happened. Now, I knew he wasn't doing well. He'd been homeless for a little while. I knew he wasn't doing well in the shelter system, and I knew his health wasn't that great, but I thought he was being a bit overly dramatic. Didn't think much of it until a week later when I actually uh, got the call that he had died in his sleep at the shelter. Now, I don't know totally what to do with that story, right? Like, that is a story that affected me, and I don't know, I, I still am dissecting it, right? But one of the things that I do know is that monsters don't exist, right? Is that this man would be the poster of what we would think a monster is, and he wasn't that. That doesn't mean he didn't do it, and that doesn't mean that we don't deal with that. But he wasn't the monster that we think, that, that, that he was pictured as, right? And so what do we do with that? Well, for, for me, what I've learned is one, is that we, we have to hold two things in tension. The first thing we have to do is we do need to deal with accountability. 
right? We have to hold people accountable. Now, what that doesn't mean, and we've become obsessed in our Western culture that accountability means punishment. It doesn't mean punishment. Punishment actually doesn't work. There's a man who wrote a book. His name is James Gilligan. And he was, uh, he was hired. He, he was a Harvard, um, a Harvard medical professor. And he was hired to, by the Massachusetts um, uh, super jails to try and, uh, and deal with their violence issue. Right? And what, what, because in their, in their supermax prisons, they were having murders happen on a regular basis. And Gilligan was hired to try and deal with that. And what he, start, what he learned in his studies, and he was able to reduce violence by 50% in these supermax prisons, because he's like, if we're going to try out dealing with violence, let's deal with it in the hardest spots. But what he learned is that punishment doesn't help, right? He's like, and this is, this is his line, the first, the first, uh, in the first chapter of his book, Preventing Violence, he says, we've been experimenting with punishment as a way to deal with violence for 4,000 years. At some point, we have to realize it's a failed experiment, right? Like he's like, it doesn't work. And so we've got to give up. This is what Gilligan was saying, right? He was, he was wrestling with that. We, we often think that the way we deal with the individual, who, the way we deal with accountability is we lock people up and throw away the key and we know it doesn't work. It never has worked. And it consistently doesn't work. What we do need to do is work with someone. We sit with them. And we wrestle with why, with finding what it is and why they did what they did. We wrestle with that, right? We, fought, we spend some time in that. Um, there's a guy named Marshall Rosenberg. Marshall Rosenberg has this amazing quote. And I, I like to wrestle with this because I think we need, when we're engaging with, with this sort of conversation, we need to wrestle with why do people commit acts of violence? Why do people do that? And what Rosenberg says is that violence is a tragic expression of an unmet need. Instead, our easy way, again, is to say that person is just inherently bad. But what Rosenberg is saying is actually why people commit acts of violence is because there is some sort of need that is within them. They might not even be able to name it, but that is going unmet. And that is a legitimate need. But the strategy they've used to meet that need is destructive. We are not looking, when we're trying to work with someone who has committed violence, what we're not doing is trying to, to, trying to punish them so they don't do things. What we want to do is we want to find what is the need they're trying to meet when they're, act, when they're acting on those violences. And how do we begin to find alternative, life-giving ways to meet those needs? That, that, for me, was a transformative way of thinking. Now, here's the thing. I can do that. That shift, for me, is quite easy with individuals, especially individuals who are on the margins. I can easily, uh, for me, and I know this isn't for everyone, but for me, it's easy for me to meet someone, uh, to go visit someone in jail, and to meet them and see that, there is, that, that what they did was a tragic expression of an unmet need. That is easy for me. Where it gets hard for me is people in places of power who make decisions that hugely affect people's lives. That people who pass laws, who, who, who make decisions that are affecting and, and, and literally killing people, it is hard for me not to write them off as monsters. I want to when, someone, when I hear someone passing a law or doing something with their power that is destructive to the most marginalized, I want, I want to hear that and I, I want to be like, that's because they're a horrible person. That's because they don't care. 
When people you know, make comments on social media or they're, they're pushing their politicians to like, to like to, in really what I say, see as being very uncompassionate ways, I, I wanna say they're just bad people, right? And when the majority of the population sits and watches from the sidelines, I wanna scream, why don't you care? Because all my assumptions is that they just don't care, right? But I need to also shift how I think and say, they're not monsters either, right? Our whole political system right now, and especially coming up from the States, is in this idea of labeling the other as monster. And, and it was leading to such destruction. So what do I do? So, so then my question is, what do we do in these places of injustice? When these injustices that are happening, and for me, it's turning to a passage that uh, activists have been turning to for generations, a scripture passage where activists have been turning for generations, and the church largely ignores. But this passage is one that I think we go to, and I think the church, often when the church has not ignored it, they've misinterpreted it. And that is from the Sermon on the Mount, it's Matthew 5, and it's the turn the other cheek passage, all right? And I know, I've probably preached on this before here, I don't know, I just really think this passage is important for myself to go back to over and over and over again, and it's important for us to go back to, because I think this passage is, it guides us in how we work for change in our communities, how we engage in, in making a difference, and how we, how we transform, because it actually has inspired revolutionary movements around the globe over and over and over again. I, this, this is one of the only evidence-based passages we have in scripture. This one works, right? And so I want, I want to go through it. Okay, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh, it's not an easy passage, right? What do we do with this? And what's interesting about it is that though this passage seems to be saying one thing, this passage has actually been the blueprint that has been used by people who have toppled governments, right? That's wild to wrestle with. When I, I once preached on this to, uh, to a bunch of youth at the Bridge Youth Center, and I read this passage, and I said, what do, you, what, what do you think? And one kid put up his hand, and very honestly, I'm gonna give you the PG version, because it, it wasn't PG, but what, what he said is, I think that's bull poop. <laughs> he, was like, he was like, if I were to do that, I would be labeled soft, and I would get beat up every day. He's like, no, I'm not gonna turn the other cheek, that's stupid, and I, and, and, and I get it, right? I get why he's saying that, right? I get what he's looking at, and it's because, and often, the church has interpreted it that way, right? The church interprets this as saying, just roll over, be a doormat, right? And some of the church has said, well, we're just not gonna listen to that. 
we're going to use our armies, right? And other parts of the church have said, okay, we'll do that, and so we won't engage in issues. We will pull back and be nonviolent by not engaging. And I think both are misinterpretations of what this scripture actually is. So an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That first part, again, do not resist the evildoer. It could be better translated as do not violently resist the evildoer or do not resist the evildoer in kind. So the first thing is not about the resistance, it's about how you resist. Jesus is not saying don't resist. And again, this is what, uh, uh, so I, I'm from Mennonite heritage, right? And the Mennonites have largely, I think, misinterpreted this passage in that way. That's not all the Mennonites. There's kind of been a split in how they interpret this passage. But largely, there has been an interpretation of this passage being that, that to not resist means to just give in. And, and, and my, I know that my, my ancestors, that was largely how they interpreted it and acted on it. And, but, but what this is saying is not that, because the next three examples, though they don't appear it, are actually all resistance passages. So the first one, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. This, I think, is a really interesting one to wrestle with. So in this culture, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, because everything is done with your right hand, because the left hand is used for unclean acts. So everything is done with the right hand. So if you're struck on the right cheek, it is a backhand. And a backhanded hit is clearly a hit of a, in that culture was a slave owner to a slave. You are putting someone in their place, right? That is the hit of a backhand, okay? So if I'm sla slapping someone on the right cheek, I'm letting them know they are below me and they put them in their place. If that person I'm slapping turns the other cheek, I can't backhand them, right? Like, this looks really weird. Uh, like I can't do that. If someone turns the other cheek, they're saying, you can hit me again, but this time, you've got to hit me as an equal. Because they're, they're turning that cheek, you have to hit them with the forehand. That was how you hit an equal. That is a very, that is not about saying just give in. It's about saying, yeah, you're going to have to recognize my personhood if you are going to punch me again. Right? If you are going to engage with me again, recognize my personhood. This is an act of resistance. Similarly, the next passage where it says, if anyone, uh, if anyone wants to sue you for your coat, give your cloak as well. Again, in that, pa in that time frame, what was happening is that uh, rich, land, rich uh, landowners were giving out uh, loans to poor farmers. And they'd give these loans, and then they'd jack up interest rates, take the, the, the poor farmers to court, and when they would take them to court, they would then sue, they were allowed to sue them for everything except for their cloak, which was their underwear, right? That was the last thing, so they could take for everything. If anyone sues you for your coat, means they've sued you for everything you have, right? And that was always the act of the rich on the poor. That was what was happening. But here's the thing, is what Jesus is saying is, they know that, he knows that they're not going to be able to fight their way against the rich, but you know what's going to look really bad? Is when the person's like, you know what, here's my underwear. And the person walks out of court buck naked. Nakedness has been a nonviolent strategy by oppressed people for a long time. Just look up different stories of people being like, we're going to make the oppressors real uncomfortable right now, right? In South Africa, there was a group of, of South African moms who, uh, when, when the South African government came to remove an, uh, an encampment, this is very much in our world, but remove a community, 
They, when the bulldozers came, they were like, cool. And they stripped naked and stood in front of the bulldozers, and these soldiers had no idea what to do. They were like, we're out of here. We don't know what to do with naked people, right? So, so this idea of nakedness has been a nonviolent strategy for a long time. Lastly, uh, we have the, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second. Again, Roman soldiers were allowed to force uh, Jewish, uh, well, anyone that they, that they were dominating, but in particular, they were allowed to, they were allowed to force Jewish, um, anyone they came across, to carry their gear for one mile. And this was quite demeaning for the Jewish people because the Romans were their colonizers. And so they had to carry the very tools of their own oppression for a mile, right? But the interesting thing about this was that uh, there was very strict rules if you went past that mile. So there was shame on the soldier. They would get into big trouble, and they would look really bad if they, put, if they made someone carry it beyond. So imagine this scenario. The soldier finds this Jewish guy, says, you got to carry my gear. They start going the mile. They get to the mile marker. The soldier stops. He's like, okay, you can give me your stuff. He's like, no, I got this, and keeps going. The soldier's like, no, no, I, like, I really want my stuff back. No, 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 I've got this. I'm going to keep going. All of a sudden, the soldier's like, chasing, please, give me my, you know, give me my stuff back. Like, this is, you know, power has been reversed in that scenario. Does that not mean there's a good chance that that soldier is going to beat up that guy? Yeah, for sure. But it's also a good chance that he's, he's going to think twice the next time he tries to give a Jewish guy his stuff, right? These are, these, these are acts of resistance, so the first thing we need to hold when looking at how do we engage as the church, what is the way of Jesus in engaging in injustice? It is resistance. There's a guy named William Stringfellow who talks about within Christianity, resistance is what keeps us human. To be Christian is not to sit on the sidelines as injustice happens and offer prayers, though prayer is important. It is to get in the mix and the mud of it and to resist. This is what we are called to be as followers of Jesus. This is what Jesus called as his way. This is actually, I think, one of the important ways of understanding what the cross was. The cross was an act, more than this, but was an act of nonviolent resistance. Right? It was, it was exposing the powers for what they are. So we've got this first thing. Nonviolence, if we commit to an act of nonviolence, it's not committing to not engaging. Nonviolent activists over the last few, uh, last few generations have wanted to differentiate that, so they talk about the difference between nonviolence and non-hyphen violence. There might be a fight going on, or someone might be beating someone else up, and you might be watching, and in, in theory you're non-hyphen violence because you're not getting involved in it, but that's not nonviolence. Uh, Kazu Haga, who is, uh, who is an activist and an author who I, I hugely recommend, he says nonviolence is not, is not about what not to do. It is about what you are going to do about the violence and injustice we see in our hearts, our homes, our neighborhoods, and society at large. It's about taking a proactive stand against violence and injustices. Nonviolence is about action, not inaction. So our first thing is that we are called to get involved. The second piece, though, is equally important. Because what Jesus says later is we're not just engaging in this resistance so that we win. We're engaging because we love our enemies. That's a very different way of engaging, right? I'm not engaging against those who are oppressing because I think that, I, because I want to beat them, because I want to replace them with, my, with our own levels of power. No, it is because I love my enemies. I want us to become one. Martin Luther King calls us the beloved community. That the idea of what we're working towards is not to win, 
but to, but to welcome those that we are looking, that we are resisting in to the kingdom of God, to the beloved community, however we want to understand it. That is what we're called to do. That changes how we do activism. So I, uh, and many others, have been engaged uh, recently in a lot, over the last two years, in challenging the criminalization of those experiencing homelessness because it's actually killing people. What is happening is, is we have made housing, instead of something that uh, it should be available to everyone, Something we, we saw, we believed that, right? During, during the war, we built wartime houses which were in that neighborhood because we believed everyone should have access to housing. But we've made it into a commodity so that only certain people can afford it. We've made it something that we get rich off and so, the, so people are buying it up so that, and many don't have access to it. And then what we do as a community, and this is happening across Canada, is that we then criminalize people because they have nowhere to go. Our shelters do not have enough room for people. And so people set up tents and then we pass bylaws that make it so that people aren't allowed to sleep in our, sleep in our, our, our parks or set up tents. And yet they have nowhere else to go, literally. So we are telling them through the legal system that your very existence, the way in which you live, the things you need to do to survive are illegal. Imagine what that would feel like. You are being told by, the le by, by, by your community that you don't belong here. But the reality is that same thing's happening in all communities, so there's nowhere you belong. You're being told you have no place. So we've been fighting that, and I, I have to say that repeatedly, it has been very easy for me to see what I want to do is beat and win against those who are passing these laws. Right, I want to win. Right? But what I'm called to do is bring them in. That doesn't mean I don't resist them. And it doesn't mean I don't resist them hard. But my ultimate goal is not their defeat, but is to bring them on side, to bring them on board, right? Is to love them. Oh, Frig, it's so hard. But, but that, is, that is what we're called to do. What does that look like? Well, uh, an interesting thing to explore, there's been different people, but um, there's a, a woman named Judith Butler who's, a, who's a, a thinker, and she wrote a book called The Force of Nonviolence. And she talks about normally what we talk about in justifying violence is self-defense. But she has this thing where she says, we actually have to question what is the self. Okay, when we say, um, I, I would only use violence in self-defense, do we just mean me? Probably not. Do we mean our family? Yeah. Do we mean our friends? And what she says is every line you draw of who the self is, is arbitrary. Right? You're always drawing an arbitrary line of who yourself is. And so the idea of nonviolence is to say what Mickey Cashin says, that nonviolence is extending my circle of care to infinity. It's saying that the self, I'm not going to draw any arbitrary line of what the self is. That actually everyone is a part of myself. Oh, that is really complicated, right? And, and, so, and, then, and then Pauli Murray, who was a, a longtime civil rights activist, a gender equity activist, uh, uh, they said, when my brothers try to draw a circle to exclude me, I shall draw a larger circle to include them. Where they speak out for the privileges of a puny group, I shall shout for the rights of all mankind. What activists have been fighting for, and, and I think what the church should be a voice for, is that idea of how do we create, uh, how do we create the beloved community? So this idea of Jesus and how do, we, how do we fight against the violences of our culture, because there is so many violences, is first, we resist, and second, we welcome people in. 
Now, there's so much more to this. If you ever want, we offer at One City a course on Kingian nonviolence. That's nonviolence in the, in the, in the line of Martin Luther King. And there's, there's six principles and six practices of nonviolence that, are really, that, that you can delve into. But I think at the core here, these are two things that we can hold. We are followers of Jesus. We are followers of the one who didn't just die on the cross, but said, take up your cross. Right? The cross wasn't just something that was done for us. The cross was something we were called to join in. And that, that, that cross uh, was a political act. The cross was a death of insurrectionists. That was what was used to crush political um, threats. And we were called to take up that cross. And it is not easy. And it doesn't even mean that we actually are going to win. Because winning is actually creating a community, the beloved community. But we're called to work towards that. What would, be, what would it be if we as the church, and I don't just mean the parish, but the church and Peterborough, the church, began to really embrace that vision of nonviolent resistance? What would, what would how would the world change if we began to be that voice in our communities?